So this morning we want to wrap up our three-part series, Eat, Pray, Love. We want to talk about the pursuit of love. Solomon says in Proverbs 21.21, Whoever pursues righteousness and love finds life, prosperity, and honor. Now you'd think, with all of our technological and scientific advances... All those that have been available to us in the last 2,500 years since Solomon wrote that, that we'd be experts at pursuing love, right? (laughs) Not so much. There are over 1,500 websites and a multi-billion dollar industry devoted to the online pursuit of love and not those websites. If you believe there are ads, selecting a compatible life partner is as easy as ordering off a Chinese menu. But they're no more successful at helping you find a life mate than those notes you got in first grade that said, do you like me? Check yes or no. Advertisers would have you believe that finding love is as easy as running down to the nearest Walmart and selecting the right shampoo or body spray, or if you're a little higher on the food chain, signing the right lease on the right Beamer. And love songs really aren't any help in shaping our philosophy of love, are they? I mean, I asked for some help online this week, help finding Good love songs. I got over a hundred responses on my personal and the Westridge Facebook site in that help. And some of you responded with some great love songs. Some of you need some help. (laughs) You do. Either you were messing with me or I got a great insight into the help that you need. Some of you are country western fans. You need the most help. (laughs) You suggested Waylon Jennings' song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. I Love This Bar, not a great song. All My Exes Live in Texas. Some of you went to classic rock, Tina Turner's What's Love Got to Do With It? Or The Doors, this is a real indicator of trouble. Hello, I love you, won't you tell me your name? Thought I'd be a little more contemporary and quote CeeLo Green, but I can't get away with that even at Westridge. If you don't know the song I'm referring to, that's okay, don't look it up. Michael Jackson has the number two love song of all time. I'll be there. Remember the lyrics? I'll be there to protect you with unselfish love that respects you. Just call my name and I'll be there. The song sounds great when sung, but you read the lyrics aloud and you realize there's a little bit of stalker that was in Michael. (laughs) If ever you should find someone new, I know he'd better be good to you because... If he doesn't, I'll be there. A little stalkerish, don't you think? <laughs> and then there's the wonderful words of Meatloaf. Yes, kids under the age of 30, there was a singer named Meatloaf. <laughs> and if Idol's ratings continue to descend, he'll be on there in two years. Um, all I can do is keep telling you, I want you, I need you, but there ain't no way I'm ever going to love you. Remember the last line? Say it with me. Now don't be sad, cause... Two out of three ain't bad. Yeah, advertisers mess up our philosophy of love. Songs mess up our pursuit of love. 
And then we cling to children's stories to teach little girls that one day, if you play your cards right, you're going to meet the one. Your Prince Charming is going to ride in in a white convertible. I updated the story. He's going to sweep you off your feet, and everything is going to be perfect from that moment forward. You will get a house with a white picket fence and a dog, not a cat. And 2.5 kids, and you will live happily ever after. Your life will be complete when you find that special someone. And if our culture, through music and story, is a reflection of life, real life, then the pursuit of love can really mess us up. In the end, we are less likely to quote the philosopher Solomon than we are to quote the philosopher Freddie Mercury. Can anybody, anybody find me somebody to love? Perhaps Shakespeare, who was no slouch at describing matters of the heart, nailed it when he described the nature of love. He said, love is a smoke made with the fumes of size. You don't need a doctorate in philosophy to understand what he meant. He's saying love is both elusive and it can render us speechless. And nearly all of us, at least at some point in our lives, will be surprised by the elusive nature of love. It can just be so elusive. The life of Jacob in the Old Testament portrays a very realistic picture of the elusive nature of love on almost every level. Now, if I were to tell you Jacob's life story without telling you that it came from the Bible, you would be shocked. You, in fact, wouldn't think it was a Bible story. You would think that I were describing to you the latest episode from Jerry Springer. I mean, it has that many weird twists and turns. I don't have time to read you all of the story. Trust me, I'm not making it up. In Genesis 25, we learn that Jacob was the second of twin born, sons born to Isaac and Rebekah, his parents. The writer skips the childhood of Jacob. And he just blows right past his childhood, his adolescence. He gets right to the heart of the family's problems in Genesis 25:28, and says this, Isaac loved Esau, the older brother, because he enjoyed eating the wild game that Esau brought home. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Great family, right? That's a huge piece of the puzzle to understand the problems that Jacob is going to have in love relationships the rest of his life. In fact, it's not just a piece of the puzzle. It's like the box top to the puzzle. It's telling you everything you need to know. Jacob never experienced the full, unconditional love of his father. And if you grew up in a home like that, If you grew up in a home where your parents played favorites, in a home where dad was absent or distant, then you know the kind of emptiness that that can leave, the kind of longing and loneliness that can create in your heart. And so Jacob spent a significant portion of his life trying to earn his father's love, trying to earn what he thought Jacob had. But if you read the verse closely, what Esau had, if you read it closely... Esau didn't have a great relationship with his dad either. He had what I'd describe as a because of love. 
His father loved him because of what he could do for him. Not just because of who he was. So Jacob was really hungering for something that didn't exist. He was hungering for the shallow love that existed between his father and Esau. Love was elusive even in his growing up years, and it would be for the rest of his life. The elusive nature of love would follow Jacob for 40 years or more in his life. It would lead him to make horrible choices that would cost him the only love he really knew, the love of his mother. It would cost him his relationship with his twin brother. It would cause him to run for his life hundreds of miles from home. It would cause him to literally have such a gaping hole in his heart for love that he'd fall in love with the first woman he met in this new town. But I'm kind of getting ahead of myself in the story. What happens when you read and understand Jacob's life story is that you begin also to understand the destructive power that love can have in our lives. Our hunger for love is intense. It's one of the basic drives, one of the basic needs that God puts in our lives. He's placed it in us, this need to give and receive love in healthy, safe relationships. The problem is that for many of us, when love remains elusive for so long, we can go down a destructive path to try to find it. Let me walk you through how that happened in Jacob's life. Jacob's parents continued to play favorites all throughout his life while he lived at home. And Jacob continued to struggle to try to earn his father's love. In the process, he stole the two most important things that his brother Esau had. He stole his birthright, which meant as the firstborn, he got a double share of the inheritance, and he stole his blessing as the firstborn. Esau, at that point, was done with Jacob. He was done with all of this bitterness, all of this fighting in his family, and Esau began to plot to murder his brother. When Jacob found out, he ran for his life. And he lost the only semblance of love that he had ever known. He would never see his mother alive again. Genesis 29 tells us that he fled to a region known as Padan Aram. I'm not making that up. Um, He began to look for his... It sounds like something out of a Disney movie, doesn't it? Padan Aram. Uh, He began to look in that region for his uncle, Laban, his mother's brother. The first thing he did when he got to Padanaram was he went to the well. The wells were a local gathering place in that culture. So he's hanging out by the well, waiting for people to show up to water their livestock, to get water for their home. He's hanging out at the well when up walks this smoking hot young shepherd girl. That's a loose translation of that passage. (laughs) Up walks this smoking hot shepherd girl, who he finds out from the other people who are already there, is named Rachel. Rachel walks up, and it turns out she is Laban's daughter. Okay, so if you're tracking with me, that would make her his. It's not a trick question. Laban's his uncle. Rachel is Laban's daughter. That would make her his. Thank you. You're tracking with me. All right, the Bible tells us that Jacob instantly falls in love with her. How likely is that? Not very. It's also not very smart. It's not very surprising, given the love deficit that's in his life. He's about to go down a very destructive path.
path. Jacob hangs around, goes to work for his uncle. After about a month of living there and working for his uncle, his uncle says, now wait a minute, this isn't fair. You're working hard, you're working for me, and I'm not paying you. I'm taking advantage of you. That's not fair just because you're my nephew. So you tell me what your wages should be, and I'll pay you. And this is the opening that Jacob has been waiting for. So Jacob says to his uncle, because he's in love with Rachel, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. And with that statement, Jacob compromises. He compromises his values. Now, it's not obvious in the text, but here's why I say that. Jacob didn't know much about Rachel. In that culture, there was no such thing as dating. Jacob would not have been allowed to spend any time alone with Rachel. All he knew was how she looked and how she worked. That's it. Odds are he'd never had a private conversation with her. So what Jacob knew was that he was struck by her physical beauty. What he felt was more likely lust and desire and not love. But there's a deeper issue going on here. It was normal in that culture when a man wanted to take a woman as his wife to go to the father and offer something for her in exchange. Property. Livestock. And if he didn't own anything, as was Jacob's case, because he'd run for his life with just the clothing on his back, to offer to work in exchange for the woman's hand. But the normal term would have been about a year and a half or two years. Jacob, up front, either he's a bad bargainer or he's compromising, which I think is what's happening here out of the chute says, I will work for you for seven years. That's insane. There's no way anybody would have done that in that culture. What Jacob is saying is, I will do anything to have that woman. Anything. When you reach that level of compromise in the pursuit of love, that's destructive. And we can easily get to that point of compromise when love remains elusive. We meet the person that we think could be the one. And then we begin to feel the possibility of them slipping away, and so we start compromising. We relax our commitments to purity or God's standards on purity. We spend more money than we should to try to impress. We stay with someone who treats us badly or we stay in a relationship that's harmful, hoping it'll get better. We ignore spiritual differences that are there hoping that marriage will somehow magically resolve them. And like Jacob, in a relationship when we compromise, we pay the price. Every time we compromise, and it eventually shows up in our character. It did for Jacob. Here's what happens. Because of his compromise over time, Jacob's nature began to change. His character changed. He became this demanding person. He developed a sense of entitlement and bitterness. Over the seven years he worked for Jacob, 
or for Laban, Jacob thinks he's in love with Rachel, and maybe there's this part of him that is. But there's this ugly language that emerges as the seven years starts to end. There's a darkness that's growing in his soul. Now, ladies, I want you especially to listen to the language that Jacob uses. Tell me if you feel cherished and loved by what he says. Finally, the time came for Jacob to marry Rachel. And Jacob goes to her father and says, I have fulfilled my agreement. Now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Just so poetic, so beautiful, isn't it? It's actually a very gentle translation of the original language. What he really said was more in the line of, I've done my part of the contract, now send your daughter over here to do hers. Give her to me now, is a literal translation. How about it, ladies? You feel love? Jacob had descended so far down the destructive path of love that he couldn't recognize the difference between true love and just sexual desire. The demanding nature that Jacob expressed is destructive to any relationship, whether it's a dating relationship or a marriage relationship. When you reach that level of demanding, you're destroying whatever relationship might be there. Now there's one more destructive behavior that I want to talk about quickly, and this time it comes from somebody else. Jacob's involved, but it's not him. We're going to give him just a little slack for a minute. After Jacob makes this demand of Laban, Laban complies, but just sort of. He throws this party that's customary in the culture. Weddings weren't like they are for us. You know, weddings here, if they're elaborate, are like, you know, a seven, eight-hour deal. There, in the Jewish culture, they were a week-long festival. They were pretty incredible. All the engaged women in the room are going, now that's an ideal I'll file away. So it was this week-long entire town festival with copious amounts of food and alcohol. And it ended on the seventh day uh, with the bride being sent into the groom's tent to consummate the marriage. And I'll stop the story there and leave the rest up to you. Uh, Please hang with me and not with your imagination. Um, What happened was actually quite ironic. In that story... Laban had two daughters. Rachel, we've heard a good bit about. The Bible describes her as beautiful in face and beautiful in form. She was gorgeous. Rachel had an older sister, though, whose name was Leah. All the Bible says about her is that she had weak eyes. It's kind of like today we would say she had a great personality. Laban was justifiably concerned that Leah might never... Mary. And so in this ironic twist, he deceives Jacob in almost the same way that Jacob deceived his father several years before. The wedding festival is coming down to that seventh night. Darkness has descended. And I am reading a bit into the story here, but it's probably not too far from what happened. Through a series of disguises, Maybe some makeup. 
probably a fair amount of alcohol on Jacob's part. When the time comes to send Rachel into the tent to consummate the marriage, Laban sends his older daughter, Leah, into the tent instead. And when Jacob wakes up in the morning and realizes what's happened, he's furious. An argument ensues, and in the end, Jacob works out a deal with Laban so that he marries both Rachel and Leah. And immediately stays another seven years to work for her father. But he never really loves Leah. He just accepts the deal. Genesis 29.30 says, So Jacob slept with Rachel too, immediately. And he loved her much more than Leah. And Leah may be the saddest participant in this entire destructive journey of love. Because for the remainder of her life, she is desperate to earn Jacob's love. She's trapped in this loveless, meaningless marriage. And she begins to have children, hoping that that will be the answer. And after the firstborn son, she says, The Lord has noticed my misery. Maybe now my husband will love me. But there's no change in the relationship. And so she has a second and a third son. And then she says, Surely this time my husband will feel affection for me since I've given him three sons. And still nothing. Those words just break my heart. Surely now he'll love me. Surely now he'll feel affection for me. Maybe now, if I give him children, maybe now my marriage will work. If I just fill in the blank. I've heard those words dozens and dozens of times in 30 years of ministry from both men and women, both married and in dating relationships, who are desperate for love. People who've got a lot of hurt, a lot of struggle, and are trying to make something work. Bargaining. And sadly, many end up where Leah was. And after giving Jacob eight sons and a daughter, she realizes She'll never win his love, and she settles for something less. After the birth of a final child, she says, maybe now at least my husband will respect me. I can't have his love. Maybe I'll get affection. I can't get affection. Maybe I'll at least get respect. Do you see the destructive path of love that this whole family went on? It wasn't just Jacob. It was Isaac and Rebekah in the beginning with this pitting their kids against each other, showing partiality and favoritism with love in their family. And then it was Jacob and Esau fighting and stealing from each other. And then it was Jacob heading down this destructive path of love. And then ultimately it was Laban, the uncle, and the way that he used his two daughters as pawns in the game of love. There's this desire for approval that's gone wrong. It's this unhealthy compromise and demanding. And it's desperation. And in the end, they all found something far different than the love they were, they were looking for. So let me summarize where we are. Love can be very elusive. But some of us manage somehow to find it. And it, when we do, we consider ourselves very lucky. Incredibly fortunate. 
Maybe the best statement I found in all of my reading and research on it for this message was from some anonymous person on the web who described love this way. Uh, this person said, we are all a little weird, and life's a little weird, and when we find someone whose weirdness is compatible with ours, we join up with them, and we fall in mutual weirdness, and we call that love. And so if you're sitting by that person this morning who has connected with your weirdness, it'd be a great time to reach over, grab their hand, and squeeze it, and let them know how lucky you are. And if you didn't pick up on that cue, you got a long afternoon ahead of you. Romantic love can be elusive, right? And the challenge for those who have yet to find it, or who have found it and lost it and are searching again, the challenge is to not go down the destructive path while you're searching. Because if you go down that destructive path, even though it might feel like it, what you end up with is not love. One pastor teaching on this topic said, if you do that, if you go down the destructive path, what you ultimately end up doing is thinking you're going to bed with Rachel and waking up with Leah. You deceive yourself. Now let me offer some encouragement from Jacob's life before we close. After years of dysfunctional love relationships, one night Jacob has this amazing encounter with God. In Genesis 32, Jacob is alone one night. He sent all his family away and he is alone at a campfire And this man enters the camp and attacks him while he's asleep. And Jacob wrestles most of the night with this man in this life and death struggle. And as dawn approaches, Jacob realizes it's not a man after all. It is an angel from God. And the angel demands to be let go and Jacob refuses until he gets a blessing. He gets a blessing, and with that blessing comes a brand new name, Israel. The receiving of a new name in the Old Testament signified a change in your life. Something new was coming. What's interesting about this encounter is there's a 20-year period in Jacob's life leading up to this. The 20-year period from the point where he fled from home until this encounter where there's virtually no mention of God in Jacob's life. Now, he believed in God. He was raised in a home where God was mentioned frequently. When he got in trouble, there's one instance in there where he was in trouble and he called out to God. But other than that, there is no mention of God in Jacob's life. Not in his relationships, not in his business dealings. In the everyday stuff of life, God was not involved in Jacob's life. His life was filled with grasping and struggling and deceiving. That's what his name meant, Jacob. From the first time he saw Rachel and was filled with desire until the time he decided to leave Laban's home and had this encounter with this angel. Jacob doesn't seem to invite God to play any part in his life on a regular basis. And now, God's issuing a wake-up call to Jacob, 
And thankfully, he responds. And from that point forward, Jacob's heart and life begin to change. Shortly after that, Jacob meets up with his brother Esau. And on his knees, asks for forgiveness and reconciles with his brother. After that, he starts cleaning up the mess in his own family. And it's not easy and it's not perfect. But he starts. And his life begins to change. What Jacob encountered that day was of the life-changing love of God. He wrestled with God's love. He, in, he was forced to take a hard look at his past and the new future that God was offering him in light of God's love. The Bible teaches some very simple but profound truths about that love of God. It teaches that that's a love that pursues us. Pursues us from before the time we were born. 1 John 4 says, this love of God is real. Not that we loved God first, but that he loved us and sent his son to die for us. That happened before we were born. He started pursuing you before you were even a thought. It's an extravagant love. Look how great the love is that God the Father has lavished on us, that he would not call us his servants or even just his friends, but he calls us his children, his sons and daughters. It's a love that can never be broken or taken away like human love. It can't be abused or separated from us. Paul said death can't take it away. There's nothing in our life that can take it away. Angels, demons... Nothing in the past or the present. There's no power that's ever been created that can take it away. And he concludes by saying, nothing in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God. It's a constant in your life. And unlike human love, it'll never disappoint us. I'll never fail you. I will never abandon you, God says. It's a different kind of love than we know. Now, I won't insult you by saying what I've heard some other teachers say. That if you focus on that love of God, it will take away your desire for a mate. Or he'll fill that void that you're searching for a mate in your life, and you'll never need that. I've had some friends who were single in their 40s and 50s, and they said somehow God took that desire away. That's great. But I've had other friends, they still struggle with that. I'm not going to insult you by saying that because I don't think it's fair for me as a married person to talk to you about that. God may or may not. He may or may not supply that love gap in your life. But what I have found to be true in my life is this, as I've worked with people, is that whether you're married or single, in a relationship or not, When you get that vertical relationship with God right, interesting things begin to happen. When you rest in the love of God, when you understand how he loves you and how he wants you to love others, interesting things begin to happen. The Bible talks about how you begin to change. You begin, as Galatians 5, 22 and 23 says, you begin to exhibit 
change in your life, the fruit of the Spirit, you begin to become a more loving person to all those around you. You begin to become a more joyful, more peace-filled person, a more patient and kind person. People look at your life and see goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. When you have that love relationship with God, right. And interestingly enough, when those qualities are present in your life, when you're focused on those, they're the kind of qualities that people look for in any relationship with you. Friendship. Or something more. How we respond to the love of God has a profound impact on the rest of our life, including filling in some of those love gaps in the rest of our life. And maybe that's just some of what Jesus meant when he said, Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these other things will be added to you.